Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 73. It's titled, Why You Shouldn't Trade. Back in the late 1990s, I was invited to visit the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. This was a heady time for stocks, as it was in the midst of the ongoing internet boom, and there was much talk about that how the NYSE was being overtaken by an electronic exchange called NASDAQ. That's where most of the new dot-com and other internet startups listed their newly issued stock shares. The New York Stock Exchange is, or at least at that time, was a traditional exchange. On the trading floor, there were specialists, men, and a few women who were responsible for facilitating the trading in specific stocks. They would do this by displaying their best bid and ask prices, executing trades, and assuring a liquid market by occasionally trading their own inventory of stock when there was a large mismatch between the volume of buy and sell orders. Now, I don't remember much about this visit to the exchange. I remember the different sort of stock booths, and, and it was kind of a quiet day. It must have been a fair, it seemed quite orderly, so it was, was not by any means a volatile day in the stock market. I do remember eating at the New York Stock Exchange Luncheon Club. This was a member-only club on the seventh floor of the exchange. And apparently, it didn't have a woman's restroom until 1987, about 20 years after women were admitted onto the floor of the exchange or, or admitted to become members. Now, that club is currently closed. I guess it closed in 2006. Now, I don't think the NASDAQ had a luncheon club mainly because there isn't a central location where NASDAQ stocks trade. Uh, they, they used to, maybe they still do, they had this sign on, at Times Square in Manhattan, but it's a computerized exchange, and so market makers are dispersed all around the country to facilitate electronic trading. NASDAQ was only the first computer-based exchange that started eating the New York Stock Exchange lunch. The NYSE is still going strong, but it certainly has lost market share, and it doesn't just execute trades on the floor. Now it also does some type of electronic trading. But there are now many other public and private electronic exchanges where institutions can trade stocks. The private exchanges are often called dark pools. Now, why, why do these alternative exchanges exist? Well, because large institutional traders that trade millions of shares of stock don't want to know what, what, they don't want to let others know what they're doing. They don't want to impact the price. Here's an example. I recently got an email from David. He is a professional trader. He's traded on Wall Street. He trades currently in Europe, and he's traded mostly oil futures. And I mentioned to him, I admire anyone that can make money trading oil futures. If you're a member of the Hub, you know that I recently closed out a position in oil futures. Highly speculative. In fact, I think I probably mentioned it on this podcast. And it, it didn't go so well. And it, it, so I, I sort of admire anyone that can trade. When I trade, I do it 
purely speculative. It's almost like a game. I never put up enough capital that it would it would harm me financially. It's, it certainly stings, but it doesn't harm me. Well, he has traded successfully, as I understand. But here's his quote. He wrote back with a little smiley face. No one can trade oil without customer flow. What does he mean by that? What he means is there's a great deal of value knowing how badly someone wants to buy or sell something and how much they want to buy or sell. An institutional investor who wants to buy millions of dollars of a particular stock will do everything it can not to make that intention known. They'll break up the order into smaller chunks and they'll disperse it among various public and private exchanges. That way, they're less likely to push up the price and signal to other investors and market makers what they're doing. On the flip side, there are many institutional traders and liquidity providers who seek to profit by knowing what the order flow is. It's essentially a game of cat and mouth. You have the institutional side that's trading. You have those that the market makers, those providing liquidity and other hedge funds, high-frequently traders that are all sort of trying to figure out who's doing what. And much of it is done via computers using quantitative algorithm. The listener, David, here's another quote from his email. He says, it's a fact that most of my friends who are traders are now fundamental analysts at hedge funds that are helping, helping the quants there to program these bots or these algorithms for trading. He says there's no more people or hardly, there's a, there's a lot less people trading. It's done via computer. It's done via bots. It's done algorithms. And, and because the computers, when they speak to each other, it's almost like a different language. They can detect patterns in terms of order flow and take advantage of it. Here's a quote by Ben Hunt. He's a longtime institutional portfolio manager, and currently he's a, the chief risk officer at Salient Partners. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about Ben in a few minutes, but let me read you this quote. As much as 70% of the trading activity in markets today, activity that generates the constantly changing up and down arrows and green and red numbers that retail investors see and react to on CNBC is just machines talking to other machines, shifting shares around for liquidity provision or millisecond arbitrage opportunities. Machines talking to machines. 70% of trading activity that occurs today. Another quote. This is financial economist David Rosenberg. He used to work for Merrill Lynch for many years. Now he's with the smaller firm up in Canada. Here he is commenting on the recent market turmoil. Quote, the rapid down move in equity prices likely had less to do with fundamental macroeconomic factors and more to do with the vagaries of technical algorithms and program trading, dark pools, and market liquidity. In such a world, any individual investor who thinks they can compete trading stocks, commodities, or currencies is sadly mistaken. They will be outgunned. This is essentially warfare between different computers. It is a global trading arms race. Perhaps you could do that in the late 1990s during the internet boom. 
And there are, are still, I'm sure there are a few traders out there, but the professionals are leaving and they're going to hedge funds to help program the bots, the algorithm that do a lot of this trading. So if you think as an individual, you can do that, perhaps. I, I, <laughs> I occasionally try. Often doesn't work out. Probably going to try less as I've spent time researching this for this for this episode. It reminds me of one of the closing lines of the 1983 science fiction film, War Games. I remember seeing that in the theaters. I, I, w- I guess I was in high school. Well, at the very end, this is a game about thermonuclear war, war simulations and, and, the com- and supercomputers. And at the very end, or close to the end, the supercomputer states, quote, the only winning move is not to play. A few months ago, I got an email to connect with Ben Hunt, who I mentioned earlier, the earlier quote from Salient Partners, via LinkedIn, it connects. And so I, I knew the firm. I, I had dealt with the firm professionally, but I did had not met Ben Hunt before. And so I agreed to, to connect via LinkedIn. And that was that. It happens all the time. So then I got an email from Ben a couple of days, week later, but it, and I thought it was a personal email, and it turned out that I had been put on his email newsletter list called Epsilon, something Epsilon. I was, frankly, a little taken aback. I'm, I'm kind of hardcore when it comes to permission marketing, which is something that Seth Godin, a premier marketer, has talked about for years, that permission marketing is sending out relevant, anticipated, and personal messages from those that sort of invite you in to their email or into your inbox. Now, Ben perhaps has a different definition of permission marketing, but the reality is this email showed up. I looked at it, pretty lengthy Big, big paragraphs, not short words, pretty highly technical, and, and ignored it and because it was just wasn't anticipated. And then I got another one a week later, and I ignored it again, and I thought, you know, I really shouldn't subscribe for this. And then I realized to unsubscribe, I had to actually reply with an email saying unsubscribe. And I thought, hmm. So this past week, and I continue to get these. I mean, it's probably been going on for months, and I didn't. You know, occasion I'll look at him. So this past week, he wrote one called something along the lines. It was called "Season of the Glitch," and it talked about a number of things we talked about in I think it was last week's episode. Please don't panic, or the week before about what was going on in the ETF market and how ETFs, exchange traded funds, had dropped twenty percent, even though the underlying securities that the ETF held had not dropped by that much. And he talked about some of the dangers of of stop-loss orders. So this finally caught my attention. And so this past weekend, I started reading a lot of his essays that he had sent as well that were on his site and came away quite impressed because his way of looking at the world very much aligns with mine. And so now, I suppose... The message is anticipated and relevant. And I wanted to share a couple things that I learned. I really, really liked how he 
describe because it really goes to how markets are changed. This is not your grandmother's or your grandfather's stock market. Capital markets have changed, and that's why it's so difficult to trade because of all the computerization, the dark pools, the bots, the algorithms, the 70% of trades being machines talking to each other. But before I do that, let me share my favorite, one of my favorite video games because I'm going to use it to illustrate Ben Hunt's concept. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. The game is called Line Rider. I don't know if you've played it or not. It came out in 2006. And it was created by a Serbian named Bastjan Kadez. I probably mispronounced his name. And what you did is you would you would draw a line on on the well, you would do it on the website, and you just kind of sketch a line. So you're going to sketch a a hill, and so you, and then you could do a a hill, and then you could do a, a a valley, and then you could go up again. And basically, you were sketching out a sledding course for this little character called Bosch to fly down. He had this really cool little red and white scarf. Now you can get the same game for the iPad, which is where I occasionally play it. But the idea is you can you can do any kind of course and if you and if you do the hill too steep, it can crash. The little Bosch can crash. And it, it's just kind of kind of a cute little game that I occasionally like to play. Well sometimes when you draw the the little line, you can do a gully or a valley. So you, you sort of do like a U. And if you do it too steep, so he, he goes down, little Bosch goes down the hill, he hits the bottom and he starts going up. And if the other side is too steep, he only he loses momentum and then he slides back down and crashes. Now I'm going to use that for a concept that Ben Hunt talked about because there is the idea back in episode 26, I did something called an episode called Why Stocks Are Falling, a story. And I talked about how there are leading narratives that drive stock markets, that people believe certain things, and this impacts their view of what they think is going to happen 
in the future. In that episode, I quoted Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and he wrote, you cannot help dealing with the limited information you have as if it were all there is to know. You build the best possible story from the information available to you, and if it is a good story, you believe it. Yes, 70% of trades are done by machines talking to each other. But ultimately, the stock market and other capital markets are driven by stories. They're driven by narratives. And I'm going to pull these three things together. What Ben Hunt talked about with his Epsilon theory is the idea of this gully, just like on Line Rider. There are these barriers, these walls on either side. And the stock market essentially is a little Bosch character. He's the sled at the bottom of the gully. And this becomes what's known really as a trading range between for stocks. In other words, sometimes stocks have a floor and sometimes they have a ceiling. And and it's just like the little Bosch character at the bottom of the hill. And what are those walls? Those walls are barriers that need to be breached in order for the stock's overall to move down or to move up. And this can apply to overall indices, the overall stock market, and it, can, and it can apply to individual stocks. Now, what is it that can push the stock market or an individual stocks over the wall so they go up, they go up to a higher level, sort of a higher base, or they go down and they go down to a lower base? It's information. And information in terms of information theory, hearkening back to work done by Claude Shannon, who really developed some of the core concept of information. Here's a quote by Ben Hunt and describing Claude Shannon's work. He says, here's the central insight on this work. Information is measured by how much it changes your mind. In fact, if a signal doesn't make you see the world differently, then it has zero information. As a corollary, the more confident you are in a certain view of the world, the more new information is required to make you have the opposite view of the world, and the less information is required to confirm your initial view. So what he's saying is what moves markets is information, and we have certain narratives that drive the market. And when the the information, and by information, think surprise – When the information is surprising enough that it changes the view of market participants that where they suddenly doubt their view, the story they believe regarding the future, that can move markets to a different level. It can push the little Bosch over the hill to where markets trade a different level. That's why markets don't trade smoothly. Markets are jumpy, and you get periods like we're seeing now when markets are much more volatile. In other words, they're, they're jumping, they're dropping 2-3% a day, and they're climbing 2-3% of the day. And why is that? Well, because the walls that the little Bosch character is, that the stock market in, are not as steep as they were. Investors are doubting the narrative that they have, and so the market is ripe to go to a new level. Perhaps either way, the story is changing. Now, what what has changed recently? Well, the main story that has changed is is the, the belief in 
the strength of the economy in China. We have been in a commodity boom market, really going up to 2011, and sort of a China-led commodity boom market, that China was this miracle economy growing double digits, and then it has begun to slow. Now, this process has been going on for years. I did an episode a year ago on China. I think it might have been episode 17 on what you need to know, why China is important to your pocketbook, and I talked about this transition. But it didn't matter what I'm talking about because what drives markets is stories and the narrative. So if the market participants, the common belief, the common knowledge, the leading narrative isn't that China is slowing, maybe more dramatically than people anticipated, then the story doesn't change. Now, we don't know if China is slowing as fast, but after China's devaluation, the the crash in the local stock market in China, the lower PMI data that came out in China, the story, there's some doubt in the story. And you're seeing more volatility in the market. Now, maybe that's just one narrative driving the market. But what's so fascinating about what Ben Hunt put together, I just love his analogy of the walls. And, and the market has this trading range. And you have to, and in order for it to go to a different trading range, there needs to be information, new information, surprise, something unexpected that causes investors to doubt the story that they are investing by. Now, there's a couple points to Ben Hunt's theory, which I think he calls Epsilon Theory. He probably wouldn't use Line Rider and Little Bosch to describe his theory. In fact, there's way more intellectual depth than what I've been able to convey regarding his theory. There's mathematics behind it, most of which I don't understand, most of which I haven't looked at. I just liked the concept because it it very much aligns with how I view the world. I have always believed the markets were narrative-driven and that information surprised unexpected things that changes the narrative is what drives markets and what causes markets to be clumpy, to move, to shift rapidly from one level to the other. And it doesn't matter whether the information or t- is true or not. Here's Ben Hunt, a quote, there is no inherent truth to any signal. No need to make a distinction between or even think of this signal as having true information and that signal as having false information. Information is neither true nor false. It is only more or less useful in our decision-making, and that's a function of how much it makes us see the world differently. Fascinating stuff. Now, what what do I do about it? What, what should you do about it? Perhaps, well, the first thing, don't, don't trade. And, and I know there's some traders that listen to this podcast. And, and maybe, maybe you're really, really good at it, in which case, keep trading because it's working. But for most of us, we probably shouldn't trade because we are outgunned. And most of us aren't even, you know, we're allocators. We're doing asset allocation and we're, and we're making decisions to allocate to specific areas. Perhaps we're buy and hold investors. Perhaps we're trying to take advantage of opportunities as they rise, many of us use exchange-traded funds to allocate our assets. 
And one of Ben Hunt's point is, when don't treat allocations like they're individual stocks. And in what he means by that is, you don't. If you're making an allocation to exchange traded fund, you probably don't need to put a stop loss order on it. And a stop loss order, just a reminder, is a preloaded trade with your broker that when the ETF hits a certain level, it automatically sells it. We shouldn't do that because markets are clumpy. There is some disconnect within the ETF markets. We can call them glitches, but it's not even a glitch. It's an inherent quality of the market. And so I don't use stop losses. Now, the only the only time I've considered it is because, and this was really a suggestion from a member of the hub, is to put a stop loss at 20 to 25% below the current price of an ETF. And then if we get another flash crash and the thing drops down 25%, and then bounce it back real quick, maybe it'll get executed and you'll make a quick 20% profit. Now, that would be an interesting concept. Successful traders have access to order flow data. They know what bids, potential buys and sells are lurking in the shadows. They have the, the firepower to be able to, to dis- discover those patterns. And that's why they can make money trading. Successful allocators rely on valuation and they rely on patience and they rely on a keeping their emotions in check, making sure their expectations are reasonable and they're much more longer term oriented, in which case they shouldn't use short term devices such as stop losses. Is there any way to monitor whether the narrative is changing, whether the lower wall for the little Bosch character, for the market, if the wall is, if the barrier is reduced? In other words, is there what Ben Hunt describes an asymmetric informational structure? What he means by that, and here's a quote, the signal barriers for the market to go down are much lower than the signal barriers for the market to go up. This structure does not mean that the market will definitely go down. It simply means that the market can go down and will go down with ordinary bad news. And so is there a way to monitor that? As Just as a risk manager, maybe you don't do anything about that. What I look at are what are called, what I call market internals. I'm looking for red flags, evidence in terms of trend data, in terms of momentum data, in terms of volatility data. That, that indicates that the barriers, the propensity for the market to go down, the barriers are lower, the propensity for the market to go down are higher, an asymmetric structure. That's something that we monitor on the money for the rest of us hub and combine that with valuation, which is a long-term signal. We look at economic trends, which are still fairly good, But we're looking at the narrative, and what we use for that are what are known as market internals, and right now, they are red. Now, you don't have to invest this way at all. You can ignore it, but it's helpful to know, and I do believe you have to recognize markets are driven by narrative, and there are times when, just like the little Bosch character, the propensity to go down or to go up 
are much higher, and that's why markets are clumpy. It's just like on an airplane where you hit pockets of turbulence. Sometimes you hear pocket of turbulence and you're bouncing up and down. That's the environment that we're in now, and it's something to be monitored. If you have any questions on this, go ahead and email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. You can get show notes for this episode, including links to Ben Hunt's material at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you weekly, and I'll also send you a summary article that that encapsulates much of what is discussed each week on Money for the Rest of Us. Thanks to all those that do subscribe to the podcast. Please subscribe via app. That way it gets delivered right to your phone or other device that you use. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.